0: More CRISPR DIY bio. The molecular what basis is of
1: synthetic life.
0: Biology. What is synthetic biology? Happy New Year, everyone!
1: Happy New Year! We're back. Sorry for the long hiatus. or sort of life happened for the, for us, so we're back. Though we're gonna, we have a new season of the Gene Mods podcast. We're gonna open up with a 2018 recap, year in review. Yes, exactly. Should be pretty fun. This is not going to be a news quiz this time. We're just going to do sort of a roundtable with. Adam, Isaac, and I, and just say what we thought was cool about synthetic biology last year.
2: To get started, as we always do, we need to define what synthetic biology is for our listenership. Uh, Yeah. You want to take a stab at it, Jordan?
1: Sure. So I don't know if this is necessarily what synthetic biology is, but it's sort of what it means to me in that for general biology, what I've always loved about it is just how much we don't know and how much possibility of knowledge is in this area. I feel like for physics sort of peaked at the beginning of maybe like the nineteen hundreds and like chemistry, we're still learning a lot of chemistry, but there's so much biology we don't know. Like we sequenced the human genome, but we still have like no idea what most of it does. But thinking about synthetic biology that that takes that space of possibility and just like multiplies it endlessly. There's so much more we can discover using the tools of biology like engineering. And that's just what's cool about it to me is just the amount of possibility that lies in it.
2: It's kind of crazy when you think about it that, you know, physics we knew enough about that we could start engineering the wheel back in, you know, Babylonian times, and chemical engineering is a field that's evolved
0: mm-hmm.
2: since, you know, 171800s, but biological engineering took almost till the turn of the 21st century before it was really the sort of thing that you could reliably do for
1: yeah, we're sort of in the midst purposes. of that revolution right now. Yeah. And that's the exciting thing, I guess.
0: Yep, we've stumbled on a 4 billion year old advanced alien nanotechnology. And we're learning to reverse engineer it.
2: And we're doing a damn good job, apparently. Oh yeah, so, uh, 2018 was a pretty good year.
0: Yeah, I mean, let's start it off, let's talk, you know, what happened locally. Like, what's going on, SynBio, Northwestern, Chicago?
1: So I think that uh, this year, Northwestern, like came up with a lot more programming as well. Uh, we, Northwestern, hosted the first Central U.S. Synthetic Biology Workshop. It was great.
2: I went. I had a fun time.
1: Cool. I was not around for that, but.
2: Alas. Yeah, it was, we, we got people from, like, all the way down to Texas, Rice, um, so some people from, like, Tabor, camp, Tabor Lab came. Cool. All the way to, like, Iowa State, uh, Michigan, I think, th- did you say
1: that Dr. Tabor also listens to the podcast? oh yeah I mean, oh okay hi dr Tabor. how are you <laughs> <laughs>
0: hello listeners whoever you are we love you you're the best yes.
2: um yeah and that was awesome uh it, it was uh and they're doing it again next year at wisconsin uh which cool. is just up the road from us um so that that's a really good way of bringing together i think a lot of communities um like close locally interested in some of the similar ideas but also bridging the gaps between labs and
0: universities as well
1: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah and speaking of you know biological engineering communities sprouting up in the midwest we've got a couple uh in the city now that are you know uh biotech moving out of academia yeah tell us about the people well uh chicago has two diy biology community organizations now uh we've got the one that uh spun out of northwestern that uh jordan and i helped start up shytown bio mm-hmm. and then we've got the one that's spun mm-hmm. out of that that now has a lab space out in the west suburbs called bioblaze um, and yeah we're we're doing like monthly events we got a biotech book club we're painting with fluorescent bacteria bioblaze has an opentrons and a minion and they're trying to set up a Bionet node, get involved in the Free Genes project. It's all uh, very exciting stuff. Chicago's becoming the place to come in the middle of the country, I think. Yeah, right? it's, gonna, it's gonna become that global hub for democratized
1: biotech. It's, it's gonna nice. move all of that from off the coast. Yeah, I mean, the listen, we, <laughs> we,
0: yeah, we've got got—we've got the cost of living on the coast, and so if we just push on like all the democratized bioengineering, they're never gonna be able to beat us because no matter what, we got lower rent. Yeah, no, it's it's an exciting development, I think. There's companies that
2: are interested in moving away from those two areas because just for practical reasons, and I think not just Chicago probably, but but it is one of the bigger cities where that's relevant um, to build biotech industry away from uh, the Bay Area or Boston. Mm
1: -hmm. So also... I don't know if this is a 2018 thing, but are there new labs joining Northwestern? When did the Printle lab move here? Was mm-hmm. that in, was that last year or was that 2017?
2: I think they started in late 2017, mm-hmm. um, and they've they've really grown. They've gotten uh, several new grad students and postdocs um, that are working there, and uh, there was another recent hire um, in the Center for Synbio. Um, I think you probably know more. Gay Rocklin, that, yeah. yeah. so
1: Gabe Rocklin, very excited. Yeah, so. Uh, <laughs> as you know uh isaac has always uh been very excited about the baker lab um dr rocklin is a uh, former postdoc from Baker lab so he's going to be moving some engineered computational protein design to northwestern which is super exciting
0: yeah you guys remember those um two like big papers with like the ten thousand de novo computationally designed proteins that made got much much better at uh engineering them and were also designed them to like Counteract the flu and botulism that I got super excited about last year. Uh, Gabe was the first author on those two papers, mm-hmm. and so now he's going to Northwestern. And yeah, I am so he's stoked.
1: gonna he's gonna be moving in in uh, I think mid March, and he'll be this, downtown. This
2: just in: prospective graduate students, PI's looking for new researchers no, seriously, to start like, lab.
0: Yeah, we're gonna get into this later, but. Protein design is, is really going places. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it had a good year of protein design
2: mm-hmm. too, you know, uh, lots of stuff out of the Baker lab. Uh, what, what was the most fun thing you saw
0: this this year in computational protein oh, design, Isaac? I mean, it's hard to pick. Um, you know, they had, uh, you gotta love, it. So, so they've solved like the hydrophobic packing thing, they did that a few years ago, so you can get like these small soluble proteins. Another thing they solved last year, um, just t- like towards the end of the last year, was they solved hydrogen bonds Mm -hmm. and so now you can make sort of arbitrary hydrogen bond networks of you know small like uh protein bundles you know alpha helical bundles um and so they used that to great effect um throughout the year uh uh, that sort of my favorite one i mean i really loved the like hyper stable little rocket ship of a transmembrane protein that they designed like nobody's ever de novo designed a protein that goes through a cell membrane before and then they did it because they had the hydrogen bonds um, to pack in the middle of it Uh, and then they built uh, this huge uh, they built this pretty big um, uh, basically like a GFP analog from scratch Um, so it was like this uh, big sort of loopy beta barrel protein and then they engineered it so that it would bind to a fluorophore and make it fluoresce. So it's a de novo designed fluorescent protein. That's pretty awesome. And then, yeah, they're just like they're just going through like the protein structure literature and systematically like solving every fold mm-hmm. um, and making like the you know the Platonic ideal of that fold that's hyper stable. And then the the really cool thing um, that they just came out with um, was. They built, uh, so they'd kind of gotten into therapeutics with their uh, little tiny de novo designed influenza and botulism inhibitor. Um, but now they built basically a cytokine mimic. Um, and so uh, uh, cytokines are these uh, sort of small signaling proteins in your bloodstream that are involved in telling your immune system to activate or deactivate and how, how to respond. and. Uh, they're really useful, and uh, you know, immunotherapy is uh, sort of super important both for like suppressing autoimmune diseases and for like activating your immune system if you want to like attack a cancer that's growing in your body. Um, but the problem is, like, that you know, these proteins naturally evolve, they're not like uh, they sort of crosstalk with other pathways, so they have reactivity. Um, and it's really bad news if you're like given a cytokine therapeutic and your body develops an immune response to it because then your immune system is attacking your immune system and bad things happen from there. Um, and so they basically took the known crystal structure of you know IL-2 uh, binding with its uh, receptor. And then they were like, all right, let's just replace the IL-2 part uh, with a de novo designed protein and you know, keep all the contacts the same, except for the one contact that has this cross-reactivity. <laughs> and so they made this hyper-stable little protein that does what IL-2 does, but doesn't have the cross-talking. And uh, it uh, uh, sort of promotes immune stimulation. It helped mice survive longer when they had cancers. And, and, um, and of course, the, the coolest part, it didn't provoke an immune response because mm-hmm. it's. It now looks like it's a general rule. If you have a really small, super stable protein, it will not provoke an immune response. Um, so it's just a very, very cool uh, development, and it's just sort of the beginning of this. Yeah,
2: infinitely generalizable too. You know, mm-hmm. you can imagine that they picked one target, but you know, pick arbitrary other protein structure that you want to be able to make, and it seems like we're getting to the point where we know how to design exactly the function that we need. Going back to Jordan's earlier point, if we start learning a few key rules of biology, this is what you have to do, not provoke an immune response, then it becomes a real engineering discipline, right? Where you're just putting the pieces together to mm-hmm. make it, to get exactly the function that you want out.
1: Yeah. I think that this is also an interesting juxtaposition because we plan to get into some of the highlights of Symbio this year thinking about Francis Arnold winning the Nobel Prize for Directed Evolution. Hell yeah.
2: Completely the opposite strategy.
1: Exactly. And I I feel like it doesn't mean it's a bad strategy because it's been very successful but maybe that makes me think like will this computational protein design start attracting a lot of awards and attention in the future?
0: Oh, David Baker's going to get a Nobel 100%. You think so? I, I mean, I would be surprised if it takes more than like five years for him to get it. It, It's difficult, I think, because
2: uh, enzyme engineering, which is the predominant thing that the Arnold Lab does, has obvious industrial consequences, even before sort of the biotech age, right? Like, you know, a chemical company could be interested in in using one of these enzymatic chemistries that she's developed to do some sort of chemistry. Whereas I think a lot of the uh, practical aspects of computational protein design haven't yet quite reached the market yet. We're mm-hmm. starting to get there.
0: So I, I would agree with that, but at the same time, I would say that solving the protein folding problem is an achievement sort of on par with solving the DNA double helix structure. And you know, just for the scientific merits of it alone, like these, these sort of proof by synthesis of understanding the protein folding problem merits a Nobel
1: is and, there really a protein folding problem though isn't that protein folding problems I feel like that's a little less straightforward than like figuring out the structure of like okay it's a double helix with however many turns and blah blah blah
0: yeah I mean that, that's so that's a good point point. Um, and I mean it, it's certainly the case that the types of proteins that Baker lab has been able to make are a small subset of a, a tiny subset of the you know possible protein space um, and it does sort of. It does still remain to be seen whether um, de novo protein de- design can achieve the sort of subtlety of evolved protein design. Like, I I don't know if de novo design is going to get you to, or how long it's going to take until de novo design gets you to something as clever as CRISPR. You know, if, if you want. If we look at you know our, our biotech toolkit, by and large, you know it's not stuff we built ourselves, it's stuff we borrowed from the front lines of like host pathogen conflicts, you know genetic evolutionary arms races. Mm-hmm. And you know it, when you th- it, you know you think about it like solving you know this, this uh, evolution is solving this fitness problem and it's distributed across you know an entire globe across, You know, gazillions of cells and across billions of years, and you know whether we can find design principles to you know make a particular structure. It 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 will be tricky to see whether we can translate that into you know catching up to the um, the functional solutions that biology has had the
1: time to figure out. Mm -hmm. So maybe should we go backtrack a little bit? And since we wanted to talk about some of the highlights and talk about the Nobel Prize. Uh, do either you want to sort of explain what Frances Arnold did and like what she won the prize for and that sort yeah. of thing.
0: Yeah. And Greg Winter and George Smith as well. It's not yeah. let's not forget yeah. them. I mean Frances Arnold obviously, you know, the highest profile of those those mm-hmm. two mm-hmm. of those three rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah.
2: Yeah, so the the Nobel Prize in chemistry this year went to essentially the idea of directed evolution, I mm-hmm. think. Um, where you are taking advantage of the schemes that that biology has normally used to evolve function in proteins uh you know over years of survival of the fittest and instead uh, applied that in the laboratory to evolve new function of a protein that's of interest Mm -hmm. Um, using
1: using mutagenesis and then screening for exactly screening and selection so
2: in in a general directed evolution strategy what you do is you make a whole bunch of variants of a protein that you're interested in making and then you come up with one, some strategies that only the protein that performs the desired function remains behind when you when you uh, do some sort of selection scheme. So the Arnold lab has really pioneered this for enzyme design mm-hmm. so they've uh, managed to show that if you want to do some sort of chemistry that nature normally doesn't do uh, whether that's making carbon silicon bonds or Sorry. which is just absolutely <laughs> ridiculous or or novel you know uh, uh, complicated organic chemistry reactions that normally wouldn't apply to biological systems mm-hmm. um, you can you can take uh, biological catalysts they usually start with uh, a class of proteins called cytochrome p450s which are uh, they're endowed with a lot of biological function. Mm-hmm. And then you can just sort of make a few tweaks here or there and f- select out the ones that do the desired chemistry that you want. Um, that's the So the Arnold lab has really focused on uh, enzyme engineering. The other two uh, gentlemen who wanted it uh, developed a technique called phage display, which is rather than selecting for enzymes, they're selecting for small proteins that are capable of binding to targets of interest.
1: Mm-hmm. So essentially, Sort of like antibodies,
0: exactly. And yes. actually, yeah, actually, so one of them won it for developing phage display. The other one won it for applying that to the development of antibody therapeutics. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the companies that uh, I can't remember which one is which because they they actually have remarkably similar names. It's like Greg Winter and George Smith. And um, but anyway, uh, yeah, one of them um, developed the technique, and the other one demonstrated its application in human therapeutics that are still widely used today. Mm -hmm. If you want to devise a novel
2: monoclonal antibody to target some receptor, maybe on a cancer cell, this is a way that you can do it, is you make a library of very small proteins, and then you flow them over a column that has the the binding target on it, um, and you can select out the ones that specifically bind. And the reason it's called phage display is you actually do this on the surface of a bacteriophage. So you make your virus particle express um the library on the surface of the virus the uh the library members that bind tightly to the column you can wash those bacteriophage out and then replicate them because you can uh the the genotype of the phage is directly tied to the protein that it's expressing on the surface and you keep doing sort of this cycle of amplification of the library and flowing over the column and selection until you converge on the on the uh, phage that bind the tightest and then you just stick that onto an antibody. We should,
0: we should probably move on from well but before we do, um, I just want to uh, uh, add that the combination of directed evolution and protein design is uh, like yeah. and de novo to protein design is a very interesting space, and that's actually where Baker Lab gets a lot of their best results from. So, like, you do de novo design and you get your first generation candidate molecule, your candidate protein, and then. You do like saturation mutagenesis on every amino acid residue in the protein, and you dire- do like basically a directed evolution screen for improved function. And so then you get like from that from that initial um, version, you get the optimized best performing version. That's usually the one that they show doing all the cool stuff.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think the other way around too. Like the Arnold Lab sometimes. Even in their evolution paper says, you know, we're going to start with making this mutation to this active site because it you know Rationally it would help help make the substrate fit better. So I think the most successful approaches have to do some sort of combination of the two.
0: Yes And if you want to do interesting chemistry Francis Arnold says you need an enzyme with a metal cofactor
2: yes yes that is that is important
0: and so they they do they do heme cofactors but there are a lot of other metal cofactors out there that are less explored and there's a lot of interesting chemistry to be discovered and engineered
1: Mm
0: -hmm. uh i'm I'm from i'm from california so just like west coast best coast biochem best chem (laughs) i think we can all agree on that
2: (laughs) when you're comparing it against you know pchem or something yeah no offense to our pchem enthusiasts
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think also, before we move on from the Nobels again, uh, I think one other th- uh, thing of note to mention is that I think Frances Arnold was only the fifth woman to win mm-hmm. the Nobel Prize in chemistry since its beginning. And I think that's out of like 170 some people.
2: And you consider that two of them have the um, last name, Curie. Yes. And it's, it, yeah, it, it was a, a big win, I think, for... And not not just because Frances Arnold um, is the first woman, but she's been an outspoken advocate, I think, for women in science since the beginning of her career. Mm-hmm. And that's a really important thing as well.
1: Totally. Yeah. So moving on from, like... You, you guys should be glad that you have me on the podcast because otherwise you'll turn it into that meme of, like, what do you call... Dudes, Dudes with a d- podcast. Dudes with a podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So that, that was that was a big win for synthetic biology, uh, the Nobel's, and not to be forgotten, the Physiology and Medicine Prize also went to something that's of relevance. I think we've talked about cancer uh, therapy uh, in the context of CAR T cells and the checkpoint inhibitors that won it this year is uh, very very close, kind of almost a precursor to some of the CAR T work that that uh, has really advanced a lot in the last couple of years. Uh, CAR T therapies had a great year.
0: Yeah, uh, it's true. Yeah. Those, you know, those...
2: Solgene just got bought out uh, so it's converging on, on the big pharma companies are really starting to make these investments
0: yeah and, and the, the academic stuff hasn't uh, stopped either we'll, we'll talk about therape- the therapeutics vertical a little yeah. later on
1: mm-hmm. yeah. uh, okay now let's maybe move on from the Nobel to something else Yeah. Right. Uh,
2: so that was good news what's the, what's the elephant in the room
1: <laughs> Well, what's the what, bad like, thing what that's bad the... thing
0: happened in December hmm. <laughs> CRISPR baby It's not ethical to make you know you're medically unnecessary. We all hope that you turn out okay and you don't catch West Nile virus. I think what? Isaac. Are you okay?
1: I think Isaac singing on the podcast is canceled in 2019.
2: (laughs) That is the bad thing that happened in synthetic biology <laughs> this year. Was that song? No, but, no, but seriously though, I think uh, I mean this got a huge amount of news saturation. But...
1: Yeah. So the facts of the the facts of the story. So, um, Dr. Huh, huh. That's how we huh. decided to pronounce it. Um, huh. Dr. Huh was
0: uh, in babies. <laughs> what is it good for? We just hey, told totally you to stop. Please stop. <laughs>
1: So, at the end of November, I think, uh, came out and said that he had uh, used CRISPR to edit the genes of two baby twin girls who had been born um, and edited a gene called CCR5, which um, naturally is a gene that encodes a protein that I think makes a pore in cells that makes it easier. that like allows HIV to get into cells. Yeah. Is that how it works? Yeah, it's a
0: receptor, a surface receptor, and HIV binds to it. Okay, so, so not so, a pore, but like a yeah. And so there, there are a few people, in um, uh, particular in Europe, who have uh, basically a, a mutation where they they lose like the C terminus of this um, protein, and as a result, HIV can't bind as efficiently, and so they're very resistant to HIV. Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, to, yeah
1: so dr he, uh engineered the these two twin girls to with an edited version of the ccr5 um and said that he had done this in late november and then sort of that kind of blew up a little bit the one of the interesting things is that um the university that he's part of said that he did not do this work on the universe like at the university and sort of was did it on his own um didn't really have Support from the university for it at all? Yeah, um, and
0: he, he said that he he said that he like got permission from a hospital. He did some of the work at, and then the hospital came out and was like, we did not know he was doing this.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it was sold as a vaccine trial. Against, yes, yes, against uh, yes. AIDS as AIDS, well. AIDS too. vaccine
0: trial. Um, he claimed all of the patients were super were like well educated and so you know like super well informed, but he was not trained in like uh, obtaining informed consent and. Someone so there there've been like three journalists who cover this really well. Antonio Regalado who broke the original story, um, uh, Sharon Begley who's been sort of following uh, and interviewing individuals, and then Ed Yong had a really good uh, sort of summary of all of the problems uh, uh, with this in the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he uh, uh, he claimed that everyone had informed consent, but then they tracked down a guy who had dropped out of the trial and he had like a high school level understanding of biology and was very upset to learn that there could have been off-target effects. Mm-hmm.
2: And it sounds like there were. It's very unclear since the data hasn't been published yet.
0: So this is so this this is actually tricky. Um, I, I had like a long conversation on Twitter with Josiah Zayner about this um, because
1: was this a public conversation or was it pub- public was conversation DMs? on Twitter? Okay, I was like, I um, yeah, you I had saw it. I can, didn't see it. So you, yes, you can look it
0: up because Josiah, being you know the uh, the mad pirate biohacker that he is, uh, was very excited about, you know, CRISPR editing in babies, it was like, this is the future there's going to be new human species and something uh. um, And but, you know, to his credit he wrote a sort of long article uh, looking into basically delving into the uh, the content of what uh, Dr. Hook has at the very least presented at that CRISPR editing uh, symposium, and so like uh, the, some things are, um, he checked the, that the guide RNA would target with very few off-target effects in monkey embryos and human embryos before editing. In the actual uh, embryos that became Lulu and Nana, he did pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. He only covered like 80% of the genome there, uh, which was not great. But then once the um, pregnancies were underway, uh, according to the data he presented, he did like cord blood sampling and much more comprehensive sequencing and he found like very, very few off-target effects. And so like, that, uh, that's sort of the, the good sides of what, like, the, the, the science there seemed to have been done fairly well. Um, it's not great that, you know they, he wasn't sure um, that these embryos didn't have harmful completely sure that the embryos didn't have harmful off target effects when they were implanted but it was confirmed while they were in utero that they um, that they just had well the the two new to the human population mutations uh, in one of them and then the one mutation right. in the other. So in one of the
2: girls they didn't delete both copies of the CCR5, uh, the the part of the gene that would render it uh, inoperable. So she's what you would call a mosaic, I Mm -hmm. guess, Um, and I don't know what that means phenotypically. Uh, Importantly, uh, the participants in the study that were required to be enrolled um, had to be, the father had to test positive for AIDS or HIV, Um, and as a result, the idea was that the children would become resistant to it. But for an in vitro fertilization treatment, you would have eliminated any possibility of the child having contracted the virus from the father anyway.
1: Mm-hmm. So there's
2: no possibility that the child could have contracted HIV, even if the uh, the genetic engineering had worked. It, so it was, we don't
1: know if it is if it worked, or we won't be able to know if it worked, really.
2: Essentially, the experiment was designed so that it had to have a positive result. Right. Yes. Um, there, there's also been a lot of discussion on whether or not this was the correct target to make for the
0: first ever germline editing of a human. And the consensus seems to have been no. No, it was not. Yes. Uh, even, even Dr. Hook has, like, in an interview with Sharon Bagley expressed second thoughts about whether CCR5 was the right one to go after.
2: Um, Mainly because we have fairly good antiretroviral treatments these days. A lot of people that are trying to do this genome editing are, are thinking about diseases where we have a known molecular basis, like sickle cell anemia, where we know if we reverse a single point mutation in the gene, then it can restore native function. Uh, Whereas HIV is a lot more complicated. Mm -hmm. um, And it, it's very difficult to say whether or not this was a useful or successful run of it.
0: Well,
1: isn't well with the sickle cell and other like other like very well characterized point mutation kind of diseases. I think this argument has been made a lot that isn't it true that Is a little redundant with like PGD and pre implantation genetic diagnosis, unless you have this very statistically unlikely um, event of like two parents having both having the disorder, in which case you would need to be able to correct it. But like if you can just screen out the embryo that doesn't have the mutation, then why do you need CRISPR?
0: Yes, so I think there are two things going on there. So there's there's the distinction between somatic and germline editing. So basically, if you're editing cells in the body, and in particular, if you're therapeutically editing cells in the body of someone who has already been born with a genetic disease, to treat the cells that have the disease and you know replace the defective genes in that you know fully uh, you know uh, uh, alive and manifested person, um, that is ethically kosher, pretty much. Like mm-hmm. as long as you're you're doing that safely and effectively, that's fine. Um, it, the issue is if you go into like the single cell and you start you know, futzing around and saying, I'm, I'm curing diseases in here. Um, number one, anything you do there is gonna be passed on to their offspring, you know, or at least it would- In a
1: single germline cell, you just- Yeah, 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 in, yeah.
0: In their, because it's gonna be in their sperm and in their eggs. Um, and number two, the exact same technology that you just mentioned, uh, that enabled Dr. Ho to check the embryos to see if the editing had happened uh, before he mm-hmm. implanted them, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, means that you don't actually need uh, to go in and edit in order to avoid diseases most of the time. Because most of the time when you have a disease, it's like one parent who has you know a single dominant allele, or it's two parents who have one recessive allele each. And in either case, if you put a bunch of their gametes together, you can screen for embryos that don't have the disease. And so you don't have to go in and basically you know, snip around with some molecular scissors in the embryo. You can just screen for the embryo that doesn't
1: have it. Unless you have a more genetically complicated disease, in which case we're getting back to the point that then the editing is also hard because there's so many factors going into how that disease manifests.
2: And just to give a little bit of context to this, what's really new for this story, so we have edited the germline of Embryonic cells before. This was a paper that came out in 2016. It was also out of a Chinese lab because massive amount of controversy when it happened. But those cells were discarded. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the paper was not accepted at Nature or Science.
0: I mean, those cells weren't even viable, right? They were they, they were
2: inviable. They were they were, they were, they were, yeah. they were thrown out. Um, uh, we've also done CRISPR editing on somatic cells and implant uh, somatic stem cells and then implanted those into a patient to cure lung cancer. That happened last year in an American lab. Um, this is the first instance of doing CRISPR editing to a germline cell and then carrying it to term Mm -hmm. um, and has been roundly condemned. Uh, I I think the points that you bring up are interesting because, to me, if we are morally accepting uh, prenatal genetic testing and we're okay with selecting one particular offspring that has the gene that we're interested in, how is that any different logically than... Editing it ourselves um, in in the embryo and then carrying that to term.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I I feel like yeah, you have to. It it comes down to you know uh, how much you know about the efficacy and the risks of the editing procedure. You know, like uh, the thing that Doctor Ho found um, was that it's really hard to get. 100% 100% efficient editing, even when you're trying to just knock out two alleles uh, at a single locus. And, you know, if so if you're trying to go in and, you know, create this precise change um, and you're trying to do it in a way where, you know, you, uh, you, you inject the CRISPR, it does the editing, you, you know, siphon off some cells for PGD and then you like implant, it doesn't leave you a whole lot of time or uh, you know, a whole lot of window to be super careful. So the question is, how how do you ethically go about finding, all right, does this have, you know, does this change that I've made um, have no effects other than the one that I want to have? And in the case of like PGD, uh, you're basically just taking a normal embryo and you're picking among a sample of, you know, embryos that, have, that haven't been subjected to, you know, and elective uh, genomic surgery um, and so yeah it's it's just not the kind of thing that you you know if you, if you think about it it does get into an interesting question of because one of the things one of the things that Josiah brought up was the idea that well parents get to choose what happens to their kids medically in a lot of cases you know they get to choose what vaccines to give their kids and you know, vaccines have non zero risks associated with them, very, very tiny risks. And you know, the net benefit of everyone vaccinating their kids is much higher than um, those risks. But there's still sort of elective medical procedures that parents make decisions about for their kids. And so, you know, I it goes back to like, all right, okay, so if you know, if it was necessary to do editing on these embryos to prevent a disease then you know maybe that's a there's a case to be made there but I don't see a lot of cases where it's actually necessary and so these are a bunch of basically elective genomic surgeries that you're saying yeah parents you know they can do whatever they want to their kid's genome tattoo their kid's genome up um, and I don't know I'm not comfortable with that Mm -hmm. Especially um, the the change that it would
2: inflict, I think, uh, not just medically, but socially, you know? Only probably people that can afford that sort of genomic surgery are going to do the thing where you reverse a BRCA mutation in your child's genome so that they are somewhat less likely to develop uh, breast cancer when they're older.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not even worried about, like, how... I'm not necessarily worried about how other kids would treat them because I'm more worried about, like, how the parents would treat them. And that was... That was a question that, like, Dr. Hood did not have an answer for. When he was asked it, when, when he gave his presentation, it was like, well, one of these children, you know, the procedure was successful and, you know, pro- probably CCR5 activity has been totally knocked out. The other one, not. Are the parents going to treat them differently? Mm-hmm. You know, is, is the dad who's HIV positive going to, I don't know, show more love to the kid who he thinks is less likely to catch HIV? I don't know.
1: That's interesting. I haven't really thought about that consideration i've been thinking i've been just in my life like reading and listening to more like philosophy and i took a bioethics class in when i was in university and we didn't really talk about any of this which made me kind of sad because i thought that would be on the syllabus but it wasn't um we talked about Mm. stuff like that it is now (laughs) oh yeah i hope so uh but uh i don't know i've been reading a lot about sort of just like these kind of what how, trying to get in the brains of like transhumanists and what they're thinking because I don't really agree with that philosophy, but I find it interesting.
0: They really want to live in a biopunk future. They just they, I was reading. They, they want it so bad, and I mean, I don't, I don't super blame them. Like it would be cool to have like a GFP tattoo, you know, of like engineered cells that fluoresce and it's like actually your body. That would be cool. You know, it would be cool to like live longer. I, you know, these are things that would be nice to have, but you, you know there's there comes a point where a lot of a lot of them have like a disturbing disregard for you know uh who gets hurt along their envisioned
1: path to that future mm-hmm. i've also been reading this book it's called enough staying human in an engineered age it's by bill mckibben who's better known for being like oh interesting a yeah. really like ardent uh environmentalist and it was actually from way back in 2003 so he was already worrying about this 15 years ago um Uh, and his like big arguments first of all it's a little bit like catastrophizing i think he has more and maybe this is just from the understanding in 2003 he thinks that gene editing can be more powerful in terms of like changing things like temperament and like intelligence and abilities and not just like what we were talking about with like single point mutation kind of um, traits but he's sort of He's a little catastrophizing about it, and I'm just like, chill out, Bill, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> but but he his some of his like his main point, I think, from his personal philosophy that he writes about in the book is that if if you take the thought experiment that what if we could use gene editing to like change someone's intelligence or their personality or their artistic ability, then that sort of like takes meaning away from someone's life, that he's sort of because he's such an environmentalist like he's very connected with nature and he's sort of saying as we technologically as as we advance technologically in time the context in which we live our lives decreases so like a long time ago you were like part of a tight-knit community like you inherited your craft from your grandparents you were the blacksmith and then your son was the blacksmith and sort of there's this context but as we get more and more modern you sort of have to like create that context for yourself. And then what he is saying is that if we then engineer our very selves like that context disappears completely and there's like this meaninglessness in life. Which I don't know if that's true or not. I think even in a modern age like you can still create meaning even if it's not really given to you, but I think he has some like interesting points and I think that that's sort of getting into the point of like, if you could live longer and be stronger, I think sort of part of what being human is, is also struggling, like struggle is a part of human life, I think. And it would be really cool to like, be able to transcend all the physical, like limitations we have in life. But does that make us a little less human? Uh, these are just all this is taking a turn for very philosophical, but yeah. <laughs> the, the three scientists. It, 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 I mean, it, those
0: it, those are really interesting questions, and I think you know, any one person is going to have you know different answers to them from a different person. Um, you know, I can I can I can see I'm, I'm sympathetic to the argument that you know the the it's a little bit unfair that you know just due to like the role of the genetic dice, you know, some people you know might have difficulty pursuing a thing that they would otherwise want to pursue or, or you know, uh, flourishing in a life that they would otherwise want to have due to some sort of um, uh, quirk of, you know, what genes they got from their parents. Um, and, it, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to the argument that it would be better if they were able to change themselves in ways that they wanted to change themselves. Um, but, you know, it, it, it all comes back to, you know, it's, it's not just... It's not just about, you know, what the, what the future you want is. It's about what's the path to getting to that future. And, you know, the, the means
1: matter. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just about the ends. I read an, an essay also about what Kant would have thought about genetic engineering. Just going down this philosophy rabbit hole is kind of interesting. I assume he says no? This are Well, I think that depends on what you think about Kant. And there were some people who have said no. But this author was arguing yes, because... So when you... Uh, I don't know if I want to get into this. Very short lesson in the Kantian philosophy is sort of Kant has this moral philosophy, this interesting like test for if something is ethical or not, is that is this principle of universality. So if you take something like it's wrong to lie, so if you yourself lie, if you thought think about, well, if everybody lied, then no one would be telling the truth and there would be no truth and you wouldn't be able to trust anyone. So if that's a contradiction then whatever your, that action is unethical. And also Kant was a deontologist, so that means that he wasn't really concerned with the ends. He's always like, your actions are what are moral, not the consequences of those actions. So this, the author was like, well, if we all, um, if we edited ourselves to, 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 I guess, prevent disease, like, there's no contradiction there. Cause like if everyone did that it wouldn't be anything necessarily bad, but if you edit yourself to gain an advantage over someone else, and if everyone did that, everyone would have an advantage and then no one would have an advantage. So that's a contradiction. So it depends on how you think about it. He also, Kant also talks about like the idea of perfect and imperfect duties. So like not lying, not stealing, don't murder people. Those are perfect duties. He also talks about, and those are things that you're supposed to do or not do all the time, but there's also imperfect duties, which are like, you don't have to do it all the time, but it's something you should aspire to. And two of the things that he says are, you should aim to perfect yourself and aid in the happiness of others. So the the author was arguing like, well, even for non-therapeutic reasons, if you wanted to genetically engineer yourself, that would be aiding other people Aiding other people's happiness and perfecting oneself. So, I thought it was an interesting article. Learned something about Kant. I mean, we've gotten very we away have. from the science. Let's talk
0: about
2: things that are definitely good that happened this year. <laughs> oh, let's and talk Syn-Bio. about.
0: Let's talk about our favorite appearances of SynBio in TV and reading.
2: I mean, I think one of the best ones was the. I think we talked about it earlier. Was the John Oliver segment about uh, gene drives and genome editing and. That was a pretty accessible and fairly technical, accurate representation. I think that was not, it was both uh, positive, it took both positive and negative views, I think, at at specific areas of the field, which was good. There was an interview with George Church, there was an interview interview with Jennifer Doudna, I think Josiah Zaner was in there as well. Oh yeah, Um, Mm -hmm. injecting himself. Injecting himself with the things, you know. Uh, so um, I like that because I think it was actually a pretty good representation, not just of what we do, but also the debates that, that happen in the circles um, mm-hmm. that, that's accessible to a wider audience.
1: This is not a good representation of uh, CRISPR in popular culture, but it is a very like direct one. Um, and I don't know why I decided to watch this movie. It was on a flight, and it was like, you know, on United, they have like the you can watch movies on your phone, yeah. and it was it was on there. So I decided to watch Rampage because I had two hours, and I was like, I don't have anything to do anyway. Have you heard of genetic editing? <laughs> well, it's, they say CRISPR specifically. Oh, really? So, <laughs> Ramp? Yeah, no, they, they call it CRISPR. Uh, one other thing that I thought was really interesting about how they it, uh, like executed the whole CRISPR timeline was so first of all, so Rampage is based on a uh, a video game in which you can play as a giant gorilla, a crocodile, or a wolf and destroy things, but they turn this into a story about like an evil corporation using CRISPR to like create this uh, thing that turns um, a gorilla, a crocodile, and a wolf into giant like murder monsters. When are they gonna make a movie where genetic engineering is a good thing?
0: Yeah, I mean, we gotta get positive representations. The
1: movie of spin.
0: Movie of spin, movie of autonomous, movie of—I um, mean, it's not. Yeah, I, th-
1: I think. Wait uh, a minute. I think actually the Xenogenesis trilogy is getting. I heard that that was wait, getting really something yes. uh, by something by what's her name, uh, Ava DuVernay. Really, really you doing something. Oh
0: my god! I would love that. I would, we need more Octavia Butler adaptations.
1: So it was a fairly ridiculous Dwayne the Rock Johnson action movie. I don't know. It wasn't that good. But something I thought was interesting about it... Why did I watch this movie? (laughs) I don't know. Again, you were on a flight. We we understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I will just watch movies on flights that I don't otherwise watch, because I just have a couple hours to kill anyway. But um, something I thought was interesting was that when they introduced the story, the very beginning, they... Adjust the timeline of CRISPR They say that CRISPR was discovered in the early 90s And then at 2018, or 2017 They're then like At the point where you can create Giant monsters, and I was like, why don't you just set it In the near future and put it on the timeline That it actually was And I was like, is it maybe because you want to Have like, current pop-cultural references in the movie or, like, I thought that was an interesting choice, and I don't know why they decided to do that.
0: I wonder if it's because um, like, the the actual, um, you know, uh, genetic phenomenon of the clustered regularly interspersed short palindromic repeats, those were first discovered in, like, microbiome samples mm-hmm. in, like, the early 90s, and nobody had any idea what they were doing. And then it took, like, you know, 20 years of Uh, Microbiology to figure out, oh, this is an immune system. Oh, this is a programmable immune system Oh, we could reprogram this and cut whatever DNA sequence we want.
2: Yeah, it's a great story of how like Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna were like, I think it was in Puerto Rico or something It was somewhere in the Caribbean at a conference and they just started talking and that's how the modern CRISPR Kind of emerged.
1: So I I don't think that they were like probably reading that deeply into it But I thought it was an interesting choice (laughs) Interesting
0: yeah, I would say my favorite representation of SynBio in media was Autonomous by Annalie Newitt. So it's, it was a... Is semi- this a new book? Yeah, it's a book that came out in 2018, I believe. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was 2018. It might have been 2017. But I think it was 2018. Certainly, I read it in 2018, um, and it was biopunk in every sense of the word in the best way. Like, set a couple hundred years in the future uh the protagonist is this like uh bio pirate who basically um uh rips off patented uh sophisticated genetic therapies and gives them to you know people who can't afford them otherwise so it's got Mm. this like open source vibe going um and it she like winds up she discovers that one of the things that she's um, distributed to a bunch of people has this like really really nasty side effect because the company that was making it was like basically engineered to make people like really docile and just love doing their job and get like obsessive OCD about their job and so people are going like insane just doing the same thing over and over again and so it's like this whole caper of like her getting chased by like company assassins and trying to figure out how to fix this thing and like connecting with other biopirates and she like at one point she has this like she grows this like canoe out of protein and then like canoes into this uh sneaks into this city and then the canoe like just dissolves after she's done with it, it you know it's, it was a great you know bioengineering represent i think computational protein design we could probably make that happen yeah you know? yeah you just know. love the
1: ask the baker lab if they can just work on some canoes exactly yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: that's next year that'll be a science paper
1: yeah 2019 yeah, probably
2: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> speaking on kind of like favorite thing that happened what about just like Science news, you know what are? Yeah, the exciting... we've been talking a lot of like yeah. Let's talk about societal. you know research. What what excited you about what came out in 2018?
0: Oh man, I mean, this is like there but there are a bunch of different like categories we could talk about. You know, we could talk. So so let's you know we've talked a little bit about CRISPR uh, already, but just like big picture. So much is happening there. God, it's like every episode issue of science, and 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 there's a whole like alphabet soup of. It's no longer just CRISPR Cas9, CRISPR CPF1. There now there are like you know I I, I swear there are dozens of them at this point. You know we discovered this new smaller CRISPR enzyme. We discovered this one over here that only nicks DNA. We discovered this one that cuts RNA and DNA and, um, yeah, and and on top of like the menagerie that's just being discovered from like natural microbiome samples, you've got all the engineered variants that have got like, Mm -hmm. oh, we we built this improved one that, you know, uh, has way lower off target effects. And we've got this one that, uh, you know, uh, no longer needs that Pam sequence next to it can, can target much broader, uh, sequences in the genome. And then we've got the base editors, right? Mm -hmm. The base
2: editors have been, um, Really influential for not just having to cut a large section of DNA and snip in what you want, but instead you can just sort of attach a little read-write domain to your to your uh, to your CRISPR system and change one letter at a time with very high specificity. Mm-hmm. So cool! Mm-hmm. I mean,
0: like that—that that is stuff that'll actually treat genetic diseases. Oh yeah! I mean, David. Yeah, David Liu's lab is is doing most of that, and they've already demonstrated that, like, um, you know, if if you if you stick uh you know the the sequences for like you know hundreds of different uh genetic disease causing alleles into like human cell lines and then you add in these base editors the base editors will fix the errors so now it's just a matter of figuring out how do you how do you get those base editors into the diseased cells in a human if you can solve that delivery problem which is like the big problem that everyone is trying to solve. a lot about this problem. (laughs) It is a very hard problem. Yes, it is. Ridiculously Mm -hmm. difficult problem. But once you solve it for, you know, a specific cell type for a specific disease, you can treat something that you couldn't treat before.
2: Yeah. It's not even just DNA anymore. I mean, I'm looking at the notes that we had. So you can use this for gene editing. People have been using CRISPR this past year. CRISPR used for uh, diagnostics and therapeutics. has been absolutely huge. This is work... Uh, mostly out of Feng Zhang, Jim Collins, working together on Sherlock V2. Uh, Doudna Lab has their own version of it that works in single-stranded DNA where you use CRISPR systems to directly detect a nucleic acid sequence that you care about.
0: Yeah, so detector detector the Doudna Lab 1, that's DNA?
2: Single-stranded DNA. Mm -hmm.
0: And then the Sherlock is RNA, right? Mm -hmm.
2: And what they can do is they they take the, the, whichever Cas protein is relevant for that, for that application, it detects the molecule and they're using ones in this case that specifically initiate a cleavage reaction um, that will kind of create a chain reaction that can produce some sort of output that you would want if it's a diagnostic. Or if you're feeling like you just want to uh, uh, make, make base editing, so they show, for instance, that you can detect a specific allele and then you can edit the allele <laughs>
0: in place. And I believe their, their sensitivity uh, on their paper based
1: diagnostics is down to the attomolar range? Oh, no, no,
2: no. That's version 1.0. This is the Zepto. Oh, my range. God. I
1: remember we talked about this before, mm-hmm. and I had to look up what prefix Zepto was. Cause I... That is 10 to the negative that 21.
0: That's just man, after that, you get to Yocto, right? i
2: don't even know dude okay. i don't know <laughs> i think they're just making those numbers yeah, up at yeah, some okay. point you're just like oh you know no one has ever used this for anything that's roughly one nucleic acid in 500 microliters of liquid wow yes they can
0: detect that man so i, I gotta think that these diagnostic, like and especially the paper-based diagnostics those really had a great year right they did
2: they did um in general, using cell-free systems for diagnostics has been really influential. Um, so, work out of the Collins Lab—they've—they've they've expanded beyond their viral detection. So now they can do bacterial detection of uh, specific gut microbiome uh, bugs. They can detect if you have a C. diff infection uh, very, very effectively. Uh, norovirus detection—that's out of Alex Green's lab. Um, in addition, uh, there's been people working on. Uh, uh, small molecule detection. Actually, I should I should uh, just uh, give a shout out to uh, the Lux lab here at Northwestern, which recently s- uh, sent out a paper for detecting plant viruses. You oh. have whole- no stake in which. Whatsoever. No stake in this. I am not on this paper, I promise. <laughs> uh, my roommate is the first author on this paper, but that's fine. Um, but the cool thing about that is they're detecting plant viruses in environmental samples, but um, the sulfur reaction is run completely on body heat. So he sticks the tube under his armpits, lets it sit there for an hour, check it after after an hour or two, <laughs> and it's turned yellow. That means
0: you have a plant virus. And that's just
2: so cool. You know, you can imagine someone just using that out in the
0: field.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I wonder when these um, all these diagnostics, they're getting really cheap and really sensitive. I wonder when they're going to start doing like you know, applying them at like a meta level to biotech. You know, so like I feel like there's a lot of opportunity here to do like democratized QC, you know, if you want to make mm, like a biological therapeutic. There, there's, a, I think one of the biggest challenges right
2: now in um, cell-free diagnostics is quantification.
1: Mm. So
2: we're very good at detecting if something is there. Um, we are not great at detecting better than maybe an order of magnitude how much of it is there. That's been a real challenge. Um, that That's actually, I think, one of the advantages of, of a system like uh, detector or Sherlock is that you can tell if Zika is in your sample. Um, you can you can detect down to the single molecule resolution, but there is no way of detecting if it's one molecule or if it's thousands and thousands and thousands.
1: Hmm. I think it was also a pretty good year for Scramble, right? In the yeast oh, um, yeah. pro- oh yeah. well, project.
0: Sure. Let's talk redesigning life. You know, building it from the bottom up.
1: Were there like seven... I remember we talked about this very early in the year, we were like seven scramble a, papers in a row. Or it was the
2: casual, just like domination of Nature Communications one <laughs> yes. week. You just scroll through your comments, <laughs> and like,
0: what what is this? Why are there all of these papers in it? Yeah, what is scramble? Do um, you remember? I mean, I don't. Yeah, I don't remember the acronym, but uh, basically, they built, they rebuilt all of the yeast chromosomes from scratch, and they like stuck a recombination site after every single non-essential gene so if you turn on the recombinase suddenly everything starts getting like shuffled and duplicated and deleted in crazy ways and like it's basically evolution on steroids actually what it really reminds me of is another book that i read uh, this year um, evolution a view from the 21st century by james shapiro because shapiro basically makes the argument that. Uh, animals actually or organisms largely evolve in like these jumps and that they have systems in their genomes that uh, basically enhance evolution all the little uh, sort of selfish genetic elements help with evolution and uh, when they undergo like stress or genome shock they'll do a period of rapid uh, genome rearrangement shuffling evolution and that'll create a new species doesn't this, that
1: happen on a very like macro level as well as like this the theory of like punctuated equilibrium? Yeah, exactly. So it's
0: basically a mechanism for the theory of punctuated equilibrium, mm-hmm. and this is basically just doing that by design, um, and it's super cool. They can they can like rapidly evolve yeast that you know tolerate higher temperatures, lots of very salty conditions. They can rapidly evolve yeast to pump out a particular molecule they want, um, and they can even do like the scramble. Um, they can even do the scramble reaction in like a test tube and then transform the result into
1: yeast and screen that mm-hmm. And also it stands for synthetic chromosome recombination and modification by LOXP mediated evolution That's actually a pretty good acronym It is, tool. it's evocative, it's like the scramble sort of like evokes what it does and then it's not too contrived either Yeah, yeah good stuff
2: and i think it was a good year too for things that are just like wildly xenobiotic and have never been done before
1: and with scramble it's also cool you know i don't think it's it seems like it shouldn't be that hard actually to make these minimal like organisms because all you really need to do is take is get rid of whatever parts of the genome don't spark joy (laughs) like marie Kondo. This is gonna be out of. Have you not seen this? Meme? I have no idea what you're talking this, about. Does right this now. gene spark joy?
0: No. <laughs>
2: I don't know what's happening right now.
1: You're not up on the this I meme. Is Isaac gonna, was further I'll, behind on the memes I'll, than I was. I'll, I'll, so I'll, is, let, I'll let you know about this later. It's Great. probably gonna be out of vogue and yeah. like by the time I release the podcast. Anyway, <laughs> so whatever. Uh, anyway. I just wanted. I, Isaac asked if we had any jokes. But for the podcast, and that, that, that was is, why, one of that's, my two
0: jokes. That's excellent. My wife loves Marie Kondo. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, what were we talking about
1: I, before I Xenobiotic
2: life, things that you just don't see in life, and this has been... Uh, I think we mentioned this on the podcast previously, but uh, you've got people like Floyd Romsberg that are designing completely synthetic nucleotides that can incorporate into a genome. These are just things that aren't A, C's, and G's, yeah, and T's, yeah, yeah. but you can make base pairs with them, you can transcribe them, you can make proteins with them. They yeah. will replicate inside of the bacteria. I mean, you are going beyond now a four nucleotide alphabet to a six nucleotide
0: alphabet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's just crazy because once you have a six nucleotide alphabet, you get what is that two hundred and fifty six uh, possible amino acids in a, in a triplet nucle- uh, triplet codon
2: alphabet. Uh, it would be okay. so Wait, you... we can do this. All right. <laughs> well, it. So it's twenty it six cubed. Two hundred sixteen. Six, two hundred sixteen.
0: Yes. Two hundred sixteen.
2: Compared to sixty four. And we don't even use all six D for it. And speaking of that, so you know, you can do this at the nucleotide level. There's a great year for non-standard amino acid incorporation. Um, you, you've got like Andy Ellington's paper where they do like really high, uh, uh, really high efficiency incorporation of non-standard amino acids into proteins um, in oh, vivo. Yeah, uh, Jewett lab showed it in vitro as well. Um,
0: yeah, and I saw, um, actually, uh, speaking of Nobel Prize winner Francis Collins, I saw a paper out of her lab. Francis Arnold. Francis Arnold. Arnold. What am I saying? Speaking of Nobel Prize winner Francis Arnold, um, I saw a paper out of her lab uh, about how to um, engineer enzymes to biosynthesize the unnatural amino acids oh, yeah. so that you no longer have to like do the complicated chemistry thing and buy them from Sigma and then add them to your media. Your bugs can just make them. And I would imagine the same thing-, thing applies for like the XNAs that Floyd Romsberg mm-hmm. uh, makes. Yeah,
2: it's it's pretty crazy what you can do just with chemistry and a couple of uh, neat mm-hmm. techniques.
1: Something I thought that was cool this year, this is sort of like these papers tend to be a little quieter and not as sexy because they're sort of just moving systems into a different organism, but I think uh, work trying to port over genet like circuit uh pieces into phototrophic uh microorganisms is really interesting because you can do a lot more metabolic and metabolism work with that and i've seen a couple i was looking at an acs symbio recap of some of their most shared and like top altmetric uh rating papers and some of them are uh, one of them is photosynthetic production of a um sunscreen shinorin which is i think a environmentally more like friendly s- chemical that you can use as a sunscreen in cyanobacterium oh, cool. um there's one that's uh making a moklo toolkit for um microalgae mm. in a species name that i can't pronounce but whatever um i think so that's tends to be a little quieter but i think they're or have been more and more papers doing that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, like working in non-model organisms, it's so tough, but if you can do it, I mean, God knows why we started working with E. coli, (laughs) but we're really good at E. coli. You know, Dr. Escherichius, that it's named for, I don't even know what he started when he did this, right? But there's so many better organisms for so many other things. If you could get cyanobacteria to work well, if Mm -hmm. you could get microalgae to
0: work well. Yeah, and talking about like the you know the, the little microscopic uh, you know uh, photosynthetic organisms, there are also some pretty interesting things happening in the the macroscopic photosynthetic realm as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so hacking photosynthesis. Hacking
1: oh photosynthesis.
0: yeah. Okay, so
1: it, there there was an I think every uh, news article that comes out about this paper like uses the phrase hacking photosynthesis, and I tweeted about this and made the joke. Uh, types on a leaf. I'm in, and then my fiance pointed out to me that that is actually a direct transcription of a vine because there was a much earlier paper that did this that was like that had an article about it and someone made a vine. Types on a leaf. I'm in. Correct. And I didn't realize that was a thing. And he's like, you know that that's already a thing, right? And I was like, no, I just made that joke on my own. So I'm just really unoriginal, I suppose. Great memes. Think like. Mm-hmm. I'm just like the meme. For, sorry for whoever like is a lot older and listens to the podcast and doesn't know what the hell I'm talking about
2: go learn what's, more about that. what's means. vine just what just, is vine I don't know these yeah. youths Photos- yeah photosynthesis plants was great did you see the paper out of the Schultz lab where they showed that yeast will take up bacteria and just like use them for oh, doing photosynthesis oh yeah like they,
0: they made an organelle
2: yeah yeah artificial cool. organelles absolutely ridiculous
0: yeah. yeah there was another
2: paper where they um, they coated a yeast cell with Indium phosphide, which is a um, photovoltaic. It, it's used oh, in right. photovoltaic. They, they, they gave them a solar panel. Uh, they get yeah. They basically made a solar panel on the surface of the yeast, and then showed that it could be actually used to harvest energy from a non photosynthetic organism.
0: It's kind of a toxic solar panel, but oh well. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're still working on it, you know. Uh, yeah. yeah, and then um, oh, you asked me about this. Um, yeah, uh, this is plant symbio and CRISPR, but they've managed to achieve indefinite hybrid vigor in rice, which is kind of bonkers to me.
1: What does hybrid vigor mean? Okay.
0: So when you're breeding um, plants together, a lot of times you will have like one tra- one strain that has a trait that you really like and another strain that has a different trait that you really like. You breed them together, their F1 offspring have both traits, but they're a hybrid. And so any if they reproduce again, their offspring won't all have that combination of traits again. Okay. Um, and so basically this is, Uh, people I wind up like patenting particular hybrid strains and it's kind of a mechanism like companies can control um, their seed stocks uh, and restrict access to them because you know they've got the two original strains and if the farmers try to you know uh, self-pollinate they won't get the same positive properties but this uh, paper by I think Wang et al um, they basically used CRISPR to mess up meiosis in one strain, mm-hmm. so that basically uh, the gametes would inherit, you know, both copies of the of the allele, and then they um, did CRISPR in a different strain and um, messed up uh, the gametogenesis there uh, in a different way, and then they like made them together, and so like the the double the doubled up uh, gametes from one made it with the gametes of the other, and you got the exact same genetic complement that you had before. Um, and so
1: and this will keep going in future generations as well. No, I believe so. Yes, okay.
0: I, I believe they've achieved clonal um, hybrid
1: vigor. Cool. Interesting.
2: Yes. Now, does that count as GMO, as the EU would? Put it? <laughs> You weren't
1: here for this discussion, Isaac, but yeah, we talked about the distinction in the EU about what is a GMO and what is not. I would say they use
0: CRISPR here, so almost certainly uh, the EU is like, oh,
1: oh no.
2: <laughs> Big setback, I think, yes. uh, for, for GMOs uh, with that decision this year.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a thought and I forgot what it was. Oh yeah, this, that sounds like a, also a great sort of mechanism to try to democratize agriculture get rid oh, of the yeah. monopoly of monsanto or whatever yes, that I don't would know. be
0: good yeah more smallholders being able to engineer their own crops would be nice mm-hmm. um yeah so then from from food to medicine perhaps sure what's, what's the coolest stuff in uh synbiotherapeutics from the last year
1: you know uh maybe i should just interject for a second i should, probably should have mentioned this at the beginning but we've had a lot of like meta commentary on stuff that's happened this year we should probably mention that like these are all the opinions of Isaac, Adam and I, and not necessarily the Center for Synthetic Biology. True. Just just so you know, this is all just we think what we think about stuff. Yep.
0: Yeah.
2: If we have misrepresented your work in any way, <laughs> I am sorry. <laughs> I read the paper six months ago
1: let us know and we'll correct it in the next podcast no one has really ever please please reach out or if you want
2: us to talk about your work we could do that too yeah Yeah. that's fine
1: why why are
0: you ignoring this important sector of synbiop like oh no well we'll we'll talk about it in the next podcast
2: um anyway back to therapeutics you know um there's there's been a lot of exciting trends toward uh Engineered uh, cancer
0: therapies. Supercars. Um, Supercars? Yeah, what's a supercar? Supercar. It's a CAR T cell that's split and modular. So, like, uh, you basically, instead of having the actual receptor on the surface, you have like half of like a, a beta uh, leucine zipper. Um, and then the other half of the zipper you inject in with the receptor. And so you can swap out what receptor targets what thing, you can dose it in. It basically gives you way more control over your system and makes it super modular. And that seems, I mean, that's going to be in a therapeutic in the future,
2: For sure. no doubt. In general, I think um, synthetic biology therapeutics made a big run this year. You know, uh, the Moderna IPO was announced. Um, so this is... A company that's making engineered RNAs for um, anti-sense therapies, which has been something that people have been trying to do for literally decades. Um, Sutro got a ton of money from uh, in, uh, in uh, a bunch of investment for their platform for making antibody drug conjugates and cell free. Um, there's there's a lot of promising new markets, I think, beyond kind of the the classic monoclonals or or even now these cell-based therapies
0: i think synlogic even oh, yeah. um, started true the first true. clinical trial on an engineered uh microbe therapeutic mm-hmm. uh to treat like a metabolic disorder um mm-hmm. uh-huh.
2: using their like uh uh the technique technologies at the LU lab i think is them right yeah the other Lou lab
1: Tim Lou Tim Tim Lou Lou. Lou. yeah he's doing a lot of like antimicrobial Mm -hmm. peptides and stuff yeah and I think he
0: also had a paper early in 2018 that was like a a sort of uh, flexible platform for producing biotherapeutics where he like engineered a yeast to make like three you know be inducible with like three different compounds and make three different therapeutics and like also built a little thing that would allow you to you know micro brew the yeast to make the therapeutic in like a single dose Mm
2: -hmm. yeah it it was him and uh uh I think Love Lab at MIT, I think, that, that was that's really been pioneering that effort as well. This on-demand, therapeutic idea, which has really been uh, trying, trying to decentralize some of the manufacturing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but one of the professors who visited to give a talk was like, you know, all these all these biohackers trying to CRISPR themselves, I don't understand why aren't they aren't just like engineering the microbes in their guts you know or like in their noses or on their skin (laughs) or whatever because it seems like that's a much more tractable problem.
2: (laughs) As Jordan pointed out though, engineering a lot of those bugs is not easy to do.
0: Although Chris Voice Lab, Mm -hmm. they published a thing where they basically built this uh, modular and refactored system for transferring a genetic circuit from a model organism into a non-model organism and showed that it even works, like, in a natural microbiome community.
2: The Voigt what? Lab just had, like, a series of awesome papers this year, honestly.
0: Yeah, they're, they're the ones that are they're really, like, computing with biology.
2: Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, the first example of checkpoint, uh, a ch- basically a synthetic checkpoint control. Like, yes. you're making your own mitosis, but in a bacteria Wait where until. it's controllably you won't make a change until some other small molecule input signal is made. It's basically the equivalent of a finite state machine in computing theory.
1: I don't know anything about
2: that, so. Uh, Yes, they they are now at the point where they can take arbitrary circuit and make it in bacteria.
0: Yeah. And they also now have a microbe that they could control like a puppet, like a marionette, (laughs) like 12 different inducible molecules Mm -hmm. that are all orthogonal to each other.
1: Is that an acronym, or did they just decide to call it that? It
2: is, it is not. The last sentence of the paper is, we have fi- basically we have finally engineered a bacteria so that we can control it directly as though it is a marionette on a string. <laughs> and that is where the co- the title comes from. It's interesting, the bio- I'm glad ar- that they didn't try the to make that. The bio version of that paper starts like marionette colon and E. coli, blah, 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 blah. They name it that. And then clearly in the editing process, someone made them change the title to be like an E. coli called marionette, you yeah. <laughs> know? It's like the only difference I noticed between the two things. Mm-hmm. Actually, my favorite White Lab paper this year was um, determining the lab of origin of engineered, plas- of engineered plasmids. Oh, yeah. So it was a machine learning paper, completely computational, where they took a bunch of sequences that had been deposited on gene and used a convolutional neural net to be able to determine what the host's lab of origin was of arbitrary sequence, which they say could be used to detect things like bioterrorism. Which is like a little bit of a stretch, but the paper is uh, hilarious to read.
0: Well, I think we've gotten through a lot of stuff. What are you guys looking forward to? What, what do you see on the horizon in 2019? What I'm really curious about it actually is where CRISPR Babies goes,
2: you know?
1: I think everyone's curious about where that goes.
2: They weren't the only... He's huh, is not the only lab doing that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's just the first lab we've heard about doing that. And I think that both where the scientific community stands on it um, will we'll make an, impa- an impact because now we're kind of being forced to make a decision on germline editing, but also just like how many more stories are going to come out in the yeah. near future? About
0: how, how many private clinics are going to set up and be like, hey, we'll try this for you, desperate parents who want, I don't know what traits in their babies. It's mm-hmm. not a hard thing to do. It's not a hard technique.
1: I think something about CRISPR, I think this is the year... 2018 was a year I think CRISPR really came in its own as like in a popular, not popular culture, but in popular imagination of people like people, I think, have now everyone has now heard of CRISPR, I think, just based on the CRISPR babies and probably also that John Oliver segment. Um, I think hopefully maybe next year is the year that people will learn more about CRISPR and actually understand it more, not as like this abstract kind of scary idea. That's sort of my optimistic hope.
2: My grandparents know what CRISPR is. Oh, so that's yeah. a good start, nice you know? They ask me every time I go home, you know,
1: do you do anything with CRISPR, Adam?
2: No, I don't. I, I really don't. But
1: I mean, if your grandparents know about CRISPR. They're, like,
2: close up. enough, I feel like, you know? Like, you're, you're very close to what I do. You're just not quite there. So I'm happy about that. Mm-hmm. What do you think? What are you excited about next
0: year, Isaac? I am hoping that next this coming year will be a banner year for democratized biotech. We had some good stuff. we had some really good stuff last year. like we didn't even talk about bio bits out of out of your, no, your lab, yeah. lab. Jessica Stark's work and the collaboration with Jim Collins, basically making like a cell free like play with synthetic biology kit that like middle schoolers and high schoolers can interact with. That was super like bringing it down to making it accessible to everyone. I love that stuff, and I think, you know, OpenTrons came out with their new robot mm-hmm. last last just sort of towards the end of last year, the OT two.
1: Yeah. Um, and then OpenTrons also made or gave away some of their robots to iGem teams yeah. and made it sort of made that more accessible as well, and made it, it also gave a discount to iGem teams, so that was pretty cool.
0: Yeah. So like precise, consistent, reliable, um, and high throughput setting up of experiments is going to get a lot cheaper and more accessible. Um, Oxford Nanopore is coming out with a new flow cell that costs only $100. And so, you know, you could probably start doing like high throughput checking of genetic designs um, on, on that for not very expensive per like plasmid. Um, and, you know, like the, uh, the Free Genes Project is continued to build its infrastructure and develop sort of an, an open foundry that allows people to do sophisticated genetic engineering in like a community bio lab setting or like a, uh, you know, basically without having to spend tons of startup money to, you know, get the expensive equipment. and So I'm really excited to see
1: uh, everything that we've been talking about uh, get a lot more accessible to a lot more people. Mm -hmm. I think we talked about this the last episode, but didn't really bring it up um, today. Uh, I think maybe the sequencing problem, the cost of sequencing has gone... Way, way down, and I think we'll continue to go, to go way down. But we talked last time about enzymatic um, DNA synthesis. Yeah. Hopefully, I'm excited to see if that goes somewhere and if the cost of synthesizing DNA will get cheaper, because I think that will also feed into Isaac's point of like, if the cheaper things get, the more accessible they are to like democratized yeah, biotech. We, yeah, and,
2: we didn't even mention companies like uh, Twist. Yeah, oh, yeah. I- 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 Twist yeah. IPO. Yeah. Um, really, really valuable stuff. And, and the DNA enzymatic synthesis, I think, is potentially game-changing if they can get it to the uh, to the same rates mm-hmm.
1: that can be made chemically. So I think we got through a lot today. Uh, great yeah. year for 2018, great year. Hopefully have cool new possibilities. Maybe that's the 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 word for 2019 is here, possibility here at, here
2: at northwestern and beyond right so yeah, come yeah. join us here if you're interested in getting in on center for synthetic biology yeah, we've got like nine
0: synbio faculty ten now, now. Ten. 10 now 10 now yeah mm-hmm. gabe's the 10th tenth, so tenth. we do all sorts of cool stuff and i'm excited to see what happens yeah yeah well uh thanks for listening everybody uh, as always we are uh sponsored by the center for synthetic biology at northwestern uh and if you have if we missed anything hit us up on twitter uh and uh, yeah this has been isaac and and, yeah, and, and jordan
2: have a good new year yep. even though it's january <laughs> yeah
1: happy new year y'all